Welcome in to Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf and Gavin Shaw here, and we have an awesome guest for you guys today. We have Chris Herring, who has his new book coming out in January, Blood in the Garden, The Flagrant History of the New York Knicks. That's out January 18th. He's also a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and the co-host of the Open Floor podcast for Sports Illustrated. And we have him on today, Gavin, to talk a lot about the new book that he put together and the process that went into it. Yeah, it, it really is a deep dive on, on what writing was like, how COVID affected his process, what the hardest moments were, what, what the most sort of joyous like highs were in writing the book. The one interview he really wanted that he couldn't get, and some of the amazing interviews that he did get and tidbits that he picked up along the way. So for all that and more, we get into it right now on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And I think we see Willis coming out. There he comes. Right now. Starts with a five. Ewing for the win. Yes. Up, up left. Now fires it. He's good. And he's fouled. He's out. And he's out. Anthony for three. All right, welcome in to Locked on Knicks. I am Alex Wolf. I'm editor-in-chief of Knicks site, The Strickland, which you can find at thestrick.land. Joined, as always, by Gavin Shaw, your favorite play-by-play broadcaster's favorite play-by-play broadcaster. And we have, as promised, a fantastic guest today. A returning guest, I think last time was about uh, quarantine. I think it was for a really good retrospective series. And at the time, the book that we're going to talk about a little bit today was just a still like the interview phase. Now it's there's finalized copies being sent out to everybody. Anyway, I won't delay any longer who the guest is. You already know anyway from the intro. It is Chris Herring. He is the author of Blood in the Garden, The Flagrant History of the New York Knicks. That's going to be out January 18th, and you can pre-order that now. Also, senior writer for Sports Illustrated and the co-host of the Open Floor podcast for Sports Illustrated as well. Chris, that's quite the credential list. You have a lot going on right now. Uh, I'm so glad that you were able to come in here and, and give us some time and talk about this book a little bit and then talk about the Knicks a little bit. I'm, I'm so appreciative of you guys having me on. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I, I'll start with the book. Uh, you know, as I said in that <laughs> in that little intro there, last time you were on, we were doing it was right after uh, quarantine and everything hit last year. Right after the NBA season got shut down, we did like a retrospective series, and because we knew that you were working on this this book already on on Blood in the Garden, uh, which I think at the time was called Blood on the Hardwood. Right? Was there a title change at some point in the middle there? <sighs> yeah. Um... So I had initially, you know, it's funny, I didn't know what we were going to title the book when I was even just creating the proposal for it that you submit to a number of publishers and, you know, you you essentially have an auction sort of process to, you know, decide which publisher is going to get the book and and which publishers want it and how much they're willing to bid for it, stuff like that. Um, So I was going to just kind of come in with an untitled proposal and my literary agent was like, well, pick something, even if it's not you don't have to necessarily go with it, you know, for the final version because you're years away from that, but pick something. 
And so I remember, you know, we talked about no layups allowed. And I was like, well, you know, when I've researched it, I think Pat Riley had used that phrase, no layups allowed with the Lakers. Um, and so I was like, that doesn't feel as Nick centric to me, even though I'm probably the only one that knows that detail about it being a Lakers thing. So I just kind of off the top of my head came up with blood and blood on the hardwood. And my essentially my book editor kind of kept pushing and kept pushing and saying, look, we can go with that. It's totally fine. It's actually a good title. I think everybody in my orbit was more in love with the subtitle that I come up with, which was the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks for obvious reasons, because it's kind of a, a double entendre. Um, but um, he basically said, we can go with that if you want to, but I, I think it would be better to find a stronger tie, something that's Knicks specific in the actual title just so that people that, you know, you'll look at the cover and you should know that it's a Knicks book, but when you put the garden in the, the title, it, it'll be a little bit more tied to them. Um, and I just think it'll kind of bring it full circle and bring it home. And it's basically the same thing. So, yeah. you know, we ended up doing that instead. It, it wasn't, you know, he didn't really, really twist my arm or anything, but it, you know, I understood what he was saying. And I think, you know, he's the expert in that he's been in the industry for a while. I haven't, um, so it, it wasn't a big deal, but it is funny because some people noticed that some people didn't. Um, and I feel like, you know, it, it's funny. We were talking about the same thing with the cover where we might at one point we we're talking about maybe changing the cover image a little bit from what it actually is right now um, to something different. Uh, but, you know, I think that the reception for the title and, and the photo itself, just the cover art itself has been extremely, extremely positive. So I don't think we're going to make any more changes to it, but we did make a slight, slight tweak to it to blood in the garden instead of blood on the hardwood. Yeah. I mean, I dig it. I think it, it, as you said, and as your editor said and everything else, it does, it harkens a little more to, to the Knicks fan in it. And, you know, if you look at it just as a, as a standalone thing before the, the subtitle, you know, the flagrant history of the New York Knicks, like blood in the garden by itself to a a non-Knicks fan, you might look at that on just a random title of something and be like, well, I don't know what this is about. So it does, it's kind of, you know, it, it leaves you it leaves enough for you to want and need that subtitle, but still is a, a more Knicks centric. So I'm in agreement and I, I love the new title, quite frankly. I was just curious about the process there. But at any rate, as I said, you know, when when you were first on here last year, I can remember, I mean, we, we specifically brought you on because we knew you were writing the book and, you know, you shared a few little anecdotes from researching the 90s Knicks because we we did the show with you all about those 90s Knicks when we were doing our, our big retrospective pod about it. and you know, but it was still very much like you were still writing the book and like collecting some, some information for the book and some quotes and, you know, still building out the, the overall story. So now that you've, we're now a year and a half later, how surreal is it to have it finished now and promoting it and, you know, just at, at this like final step of the process here? It's, uh, it's really strange. Um, <laughs> I was talking to my sister about it a couple of days ago and part of what she was saying and what she was asking was exactly what I was feeling was kind of like, what do you do now? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like when you play a video game and you beat the video game and then it's like, well, what now? And not to say that I've like conquered the world of book publishing or, you know, anything like that, you know, who knows how the book will sell, who knows whether it'll be panned and everyone will hate it and I'll never write again because I'll just burrow myself into a hole um, but it, you know, it's just more like it, it, it's something that dominates your time. And particularly for me, you know, I, I didn't take a, a leave of absence to write the book. 
Um, and so it, you know, it was, I, I had a full-time job and then there was this book, which, you know, could have been its own full-time job. And then, you know, before that I was teaching, uh, and that could have been its own full-time job as well, you know, and trying to juggle these different things and just watching basketball, um, depending on how much you watch, that can feel like a full-time job. So it's weird because to finish it and to basically finish it as the season was ending, as we're going into off season, it was the first time I really had any real time to just to, you know, catch up with friends and to kind of just let my hair down a little bit. Um, I don't know if you saw a tweet that I put out like a week ago where I'd been having these terrible shoulder aches and like neck aches and everything. And I realized it was because I just moved and I had them, I had a, a contractor mount a TV for me on my wall when I moved into my new place and I had the contractor mount it relatively high on the wall because I might have a, you know, something like a fireplace or something installed underneath it. And he kind of warned me, this might be a little bit too high. And all of a sudden I realized like a day or two ago, I'm like, my neck hurts probably because the TV's too high, just like he warned. But the reason my neck hurts is because I've been watching so much more TV because I've had more time. Um, so it's, it's weird just trying to figure out the next step and, you know, I'm going to start teaching again in a few days, so that'll be the next step. But it's kind of surreal to finish the end of the process and, you know, for the book to go live, for the pre-sale to go live, for the people that I talked to to now be curious to read, you know, and and read, what you know, kind of what they were, I was hearing from everybody else, because they're curious to know exactly what happened with the story as well, not just the idea of, um, you know, what they told me, but what the other 200 people I spoke to told me. And they, you know, to try to get a sense of what was happening on the other side of the experience that they remember so well. So it's it's surreal. And uh, I'm just hoping that it, you know, that it it resonates and that the book is something that people read and enjoy and people feel like they get something from it. Um, I have no clue what to what to think, you know, or what to expect about what people will think about it. But I'm hopeful that it wasn't just a waste of time. I'm, I, you know, I'm human, so I'm somewhat sensitive to what people think. And, um, you know, I, I certainly want people to like it. I certainly want people to feel like they pick it up and it's not just a rehash of the small things that happened or even the big things that happened during those years, but that it, it kind of opens a, you know, something that maybe they didn't know about or several things that they didn't know about and several anecdotes that they haven't heard before. All right, we're going to take our first break. And just a reminder, this episode is brought to you by Sweatblock. I'm sure you guys have heard me talk plenty about my gross sweaty pits on here recently, but it's the truth. I sweat a lot. I'm a, I'm a big dude and I've got very active sweat glands, especially during these killer summer months. I keep waiting. It's mid September and yet the, the humidity and the heat just are not going away. And it's, it's really bugging me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm about ready for fall weather at this point, but no matter what time of year it is, I always find that my armpits are sweating. Cause you know, if you're, if you're bundling up to be out in the winter, even you go inside and it's super warm and then your armpits get a little hot and bothered. And next thing you know, you're sweating. And that's where sweat block has come in and really been a game changer for me. They're so simple to use. You take the wipe, you just dab it under your underarms before you go to sleep. And then you go in uh, and wash off the excess in the morning and then you're good to go. You're covered for seven days. And sweat block wipes are doctor created, doctor recommended, and they contain the dry shirt guarantee. If sweat block does not keep you dry, you get your money back. And what's nice is you can wear what you want to wear, and it could be your little secret to confidence, just like it is for me, where you don't have to always be picking out that black shirt 
or navy blue or whatever, you can wear a gray shirt out and not have to worry about sweating through it, not have to worry about being so self-conscious about keeping your arms down at all times and all that. Uh, it can really be your, your secret to confidence. So if you want to get some for yourself, go to sweatblock.com and you can get 20% off with promo code locked on, or you can go to Amazon or CVS and sweatblock is the number one antiperspirant on Amazon right now and for good reason. So definitely make sure to go get that for yourself today. And this episode is also brought to you by DirecTV. Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friend's login for the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a simpler way to get all the entertainment you love without all that hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before. So you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part? There's no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Yeah, Chris, I think we, we got into this a little bit a year ago, but... How did COVID impact your writing process? Because I would assume in some ways it was, I mean, as horrible it was an event as it was for the world, like a little bit of a blessing because it's sort of like, I guess, very like isolating and, and also kind of clarifying in that like you only have this one thing to work on and you're at home anyways. But on the flip side, I imagine that's, I mean, outside of like the abject like terror and like uh, mental health issues that everyone was dealing with that uh, I'm sure, I mean, you and like really no one was, was totally exempt from. Like, it's kind of overwhelming to be like, oh, yeah. And like, obviously, to your point, like you had multiple jobs and multiple writing assignments and a podcast and teaching. But simultaneously, like it was sort of like staring you in the face like, oh, I have all this time. I like have no excuse now, like not to get this done. And I, I don't know what kind of student you were. I know for me, like I was someone who would write every single essay at the last possible second. And I just can't imagine how like regimented and disciplined you have to be when it's a book because obviously you can't do that because it's like you have to write an essay's worth basically every day to stay on pace and do those interviews. And like, I mean, we we're talking a little bit pre-podcast, just like the struggles of, of, of reaching out to certain people and find the right person and find the right anecdote. And I'm sure you can, you can always question, did I do enough with this one person? Did I get enough for this one person? Should I call them back one more time? Should I ask this one more question? And realistically, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm putting out all your anxiety right now. You could be writing a book forever, but it just has to get done at a certain point. So I, I, that was a very long-winded, multifaceted question. But I, I'm just sort of curious, like how that, how like having the isolation of COVID like impacted you and, and made you think about and kind of reckon with all those different things. Uh, oh no, it absolutely. Um, I mean, it's weird because. You know, I, I don't know how I'm getting on this subject, but like, I, I, I pray a decent amount, um, you know, in my personal life. And, um, one of the things that I would pray for was for the ability to kind of compartmentalize what I was doing so that I could, you know, so I could write because I really didn't have much time. My, you know, my focus was pretty divided. Um, and I certainly didn't want the result to be, you know, that I would get more time because of a pandemic that was going to, you know, hinder and hurt and kill so many people, obviously. But um, it, it absolutely did provide more time. Now, it was still a weird time because, you know, I was like anybody just really curious and kind of paranoid about what it was doing to the world and what risk level, you know, did I have and could I see my family and different things like that? Could I see my girlfriend at the time and, and all sorts of stuff that was just kind of like literally 
you know, it was hard to focus and hard to feel kind of secure just in day-to-day life and going to the store and everything like that. Now that said, it, it did make it easier to just kind of focus a little bit more on the book and not have to watch basketball every day for those, those months that we had away from the NBA. Um, the other thing I would say that it did is that it, it's weird. I guess when you've got the NBA, one thing I always kind of hated about being a beat writer and covering one team is that it kind of made you, you know, sometimes when people ask you if you can do something and you don't want to do it, you can kind of hide behind an excuse if people don't know your schedule. So if you, you know, for instance, if you're covering the Knicks and you know that Chris Herring covers every Nick game home and away, and you live in Indiana, and I don't, I'm not really that tight with you, and you call me up, you're like, hey, let's hang out, you're going to be in Indiana, it gets more difficult for me to lie and say, I'm not going to be there when you know that I have to be there. Uh, so like a, a kind of a roundabout way of saying people that could more easily dodge you or people that would normally be really busy, everybody kind of had to sit still during the pandemic. So getting in touch with people for the book became easier than it probably would have been, you know, had it not been a pandemic, everybody was more or less sitting at home. So, you know, there were some people that I probably wouldn't have been able to get or probably would not have been able to reach out to as easily as I did, um, if not for that. So that did help. And it helped as far as just structuring the time to do it. Like Dave Checkett's to this day, you know, the next president for those years was extremely busy, um, always has his hands in like four or five different things at one time. Uh, I set up weekly phone calls with him for like a 14 week span of like an hour or so each time we spoke, sometimes more than that, sometimes a couple hours. Um, There's no way you can do that in a normal setting where, you know, there's not a pandemic where he's not sitting still. Um, He was uh, leading a a Mormon mission out in London. Uh, So, you know, that's the sort of thing where like, I'm grateful for that just kind of, Obviously, again, it's not to say that I would have preferred that this happened because of, you know, understanding just how devastating it is and was and, and will, you know, continue to be until we really knock the pandemic out. But um, from that perspective, it, it certainly was helpful for just being able to regularly be able to contact people, knowing that they were in one spot, knowing that they'd be able to make the time because a lot of these folks would not have been able to, at least not in the way that they were able to, you know, as I was doing it. So. I feel like it certainly helped some aspects of it. It it gave me more confidence to be able to not have to really stress and sit with everyone, you know, for six hours to make sure I've asked every single question because you can call someone back and know that you'll get them the next time. Uh, so I, it did help from that perspective. It did help me with revisions. It did help me with, you know, allowing me the time to be able to sit and, you know, send versions of chapters and stuff like that to friends that I really trust and how stuff reads and, you know, is this the right way to go about this? Is this too long? Is this too short as far as this lead in or, or something like that? So um, it did help. It, it gave me more time where I wasn't as, my focus wasn't as divided. So it was helpful from that perspective. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, that it reads better than it would have had it been me trying to do all this at the exact same time. But um, it was definitely helpful for me on a personal level, on, on some level. Yeah. So it also helps that everybody, uh, <laughs> I, I, was forced in some way to understand what like zoom and Skype and all those things were last year as well. So I'm sure that helped in the process as well, where people that normally you would have had to get on a plane to go see or something 
uh, were more okay just out of necessity with talking to you on a video call or something because everybody had to get used to that last year. All right, we're going to take our second break. Just a reminder, this episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. And you guys know one of the least fun things to do if you like to work on your car at home is go to that auto parts store. There's so many makes and models of cars, of course, in that tiny little storefront, they can't stock all the parts for your car that you want and need. So they tell you, oh, we'll order it for you. It'll it'll be here in a few days. And then you get that final bill and you go, oh my goodness, this is so expensive because they order the parts for you that are going to make them the most money and that are going to give you a higher price than if a mechanic came into the store because that's how those stores operate. This is where rockauto.com comes in. You can save time and money with Rock Auto. Why would you want to spend 30%, 50%, or even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or auto dealership? It's also a family business. They've been serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years, and Rock Auto prices are reliably low for every customer, whether you're a mechanic, whether you are a regular old consumer like me coming in off the street or so to speak, you know, there is no actual storefront for Rock Auto because it all gets delivered right to your door and you don't have to actually drive back to a store anymore, which is also so nice getting it delivered to your door because we live in 2021 after all. That's how things work now. If you want to get some parts for your car or truck, go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. I bet you they'll have what you're looking for. And if you decide to buy something right locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. On a, on a different note, I mean, was there, uh, this was this is the first book you've written, you know, and you've done a lot of great things. You've written a lot of great long form pieces, you know, I'm so, so, but there's a, a huge difference between writing a, you know, a 3,000 to 5,000, whatever word piece for 538 or Sports Illustrated or ESPN or the Wall Street Journal back in the day to writing a whole book that's hundreds of pages long, you know, that you're conducting like miles of, of interviews for, uh, you know, it, probably taking down 75% more quotes than you actually use. You know what I mean? Like you just, you get so much information. It's the overload of, of trying to pick what's, what's the right stuff to include in the book. And I'm sure that to some degree, you know, having been a journalist for so long, you hear someone talking and the light bulb, turns on when you hear certain phrases and you go, let me make a note of that. And, you know, make sure to get this person's, uh, you know, to get that, that take in the book or that, you know, that little anecdote or whatever it was that they just said about so-and-so player or, you know, executive coach, whatever that's gotta be in the book. But it, was there ever any points where, you know, ha- this being your first go around that it was, it was hard for you. Like I not to say that I'm sure it was hard the whole time, but were there ever any, overwhelming moments where you almost like almost were like this is too much like i i don't know if i'm going to be able to handle this or not or like by the time you had gotten to selling the book were you already kind of like okay i'm good to go like this like i i know what i'm getting into like i could definitely do oh, this hell no you know what I- hell no <laughs> no no i mean there it's funny because like selling the book and not just that but i think also they wanted me like tweet about the deal we made not the deal so much but just that i was working on the book they wanted me to tweet that out like the minute that we had agreed to everything and that i'd signed the contract to do it um in part it's kind of like when you're on a roller coaster and 
there's that moment where you can still get off and then you're locked into the seat and then it takes off. You can't go back. I think some of it is that where it's like, well, now you kind of mentioned it publicly that you're doing it. And so if no one else was going to hold me accountable to actually finish it, the fans were, you know, and I, I couldn't go more than a week or two at the very beginning of the process. And then towards the end of it, I couldn't go more than a day or two. Like I couldn't tweet about a TV show without someone tweeting me like, how's the book coming? It was almost like if you are hanging out with your friends or you're like on the phone and your parents overhear you, it's like, oh, how's that homework coming? You know, it's like one of those sorts of things where it's like, it's a very good way of keeping you in check because people are expecting something from you. So um, no, but I mean, you absolutely have moments where you're terrified and you don't see it coming together. You have moments where you write something and you're like, this doesn't read well or moments where it's like this, I'm not getting my point across or moments where you're, you know, my biggest fear, I would say the one thing I really hope no one picks up the book, reads it and says when they finish reading it or as they're reading it is I've read all this before. Like that's the last thing I want for someone to say, because one, I, I, you know, went to great lengths to try to get and find a lot of details that have never really been out there before. Um, the specificity that's never been out there before, but you know, two, you don't want people to feel like they wasted their money or wasted their time. I've, I've never tried to cheat the fans. I, I have too much respect for, for the fans that have treated me really well over the years. And, you know, I think have kind of opened the door for me to have more opportunities because of how much they've enjoyed my work. I, I respect folks too much to feel as if I'm cheating them, you know, to, to actually cheat them and something that I, you know, this for me is not like a life achievement, I guess it is, but I don't know if I want it to be the, the end all be all of what I do. But for now, this is like the biggest thing I've ever really taken on before. So you're constantly in fear that like, it's not going to be good enough, or that it's not going to actually be informative enough or interesting enough or compelling enough, because I'm not really known for my long form stuff. I'm not really known for telling stories in a narrative, traditional fashion. So this is really different in using, making use of a lot of muscles that I've either, either never used before or have never used in this sort of way, you know, for this long of a text before. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, there's no, it was not one of those things where I just locked in. I was like, oh, I got it. I'm good. As soon as I signed the deal, it, um, you know, I tweeted yesterday with Mirren Fader, who just, you know, had, has a, a bestseller, uh, you know, on the, on the list in the last couple of weeks with The Honest Book. Um, she and I are really, really close friends in the industry. And, um, we would text each other late into the night, just about, you know, the, the doubts that we both had and how to get through them and, you know, and kind of celebrate the wins that we got with a really great interview or what have you, that you felt clarified something that you had really been stuck on for weeks or months. And so one breakthrough interview or one detail that kind of changes the way you think about an entire, um, era you know, potentially, or the way that you view an entire situation um, that is really, really remembered in Nick's history, that it all kind of turned on one thing. Uh, details like that are just massive and kind of, you know, can kind of take you from feeling pessimistic about how little you might have, which in reality actually is a lot relative to what other people have ever reported on or what's been out there before. But I just kind of feel like that stuff kind of keeps you going and kind of, you know, it, it's... I describe a lot of my stories as like lily pads where if you were jumping through a pond or something like that, I guess a lily pad, it's not like if I jump on one, I'm going to float, you know, I'm probably still going to fall. But like if you were a frog or something like that, you could jump from one lily pad to the other without landing in the water. 
And I kind of feel like the book is like a lot of thousands of efforts to kind of just make sure that each thought connects to the next one. And each detail kind of leads you to the next one and keeps you interested for the next one. And it, it's really hard to structure that and to kind of make it a puzzle piece and, you know, a puzzle, a 12 million piece puzzle kind of. But um, yeah, it takes a while before you get the doubt all the way out of your head. I still have doubt, you know, just because, like I said, you're, you're vulnerable, you're sensitive, you've written this thing, you hope that people love it. Uh, and you want to, above all else, I just want people to feel like they get something from it or that they learn something about the team and get a feel for what that team was like through reading it. And um, I hope I did a good job of that. I, you know, I genuinely think I did. Um, so I, I think I can live with it at the end of the day, regardless of how people feel about it or how it sells. But, um, but you, of course you want people to like it because you put, you know, at this point, as I guess a 15th of my life into it, basically close to that. So um, you really want people to like it and I'm hopeful that people will. Yeah. Chris, I, I guess to that point, was there one particular revelation? I mean, I mean, based on what you're saying, maybe there were a series of them that when you got it, it, it one sort of blew your mind and you were like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't know that happened that way. Or like, wow, that, that gives me a whole new perspective on this thing or this player or this person or, or this coach. And I guess what is that? Because we, we've, we've talked a lot about like the negatives and the fears and the, the anxieties of, of writing a book like this, but but what, what does that feel like? Like, I, I imagine that has to be so like justifying to you to, to kind of get that and be like, oh, OK, this is all this is going to work. Like, that's that's what I was looking for. That's sort of what I needed. Like, this is going to like make the book what I always hoped it could be. Oh, there's there's a lot of them. And, um, you know, what I would say is that I would say there's each chapter kind of feels that way where, you know, at first and it's kind of impossible when you're doing a book proposal, I think, to um you lay out the proposal and in nonfiction stories, like you, you don't know exactly what you're going to have in the book until you interview everybody for it. So um, when I was writing the proposal, you know, they asked you to do like a rough sketch of what the chapters will be and what they'll be about. And you're just kind of BSing because you don't really know yet, you know, you know how much the Knicks won, how much they lost, you know, what people you want to frame your chapters around, but you don't necessarily know what order or, you know, what's going to be more compelling or what someone's actually going to open up to you about. And more than anything, like what you're going to find along the way once you start interviewing as many people as I did. And so um, as I went, I started trying to outline the most interesting stuff I had for like each section of the book and each chapter. And generally what I was trying to do, and I think I might have tweeted out. I, I, well, I did tweet out maybe a month ago um, some of the names of the chapters that I have that I came up with and kind of trying to be creative with some of those. And so. With some of those, you might have a clear sense of like exactly what the chapter is going to be about by looking at that. Um, but in doing it, you know, you just try to wrap everything around one theme or maybe two themes. Like I, I had one chapter that I think was titled The Dream, The Chase. I'm sorry, The Chase, The Dream and The Nightmare. And so, you know, it's like The Chase for a Championship. Hakeem Olajuwon's nickname was The Dream. And A Nightmare was obviously, you know, kind of referring to John Starks' two for 18 game which he literally like couldn't sleep because of um, and, you know, basically had insomnia because of. And so, you know, stuff like that, where when you can build something around a theme, I've got one chapter in the book that I kind of, the whole basis of it is kind of built around fandom, so to speak, where I base it around, it, it's a chapter that introduces Spike Lee essentially um, to kind of why he's relevant and how he's tied to the Knicks. But also, you know, the, the OJ chase where fans were out of their seat 
for the whole, you know, basically that whole game five and how the Knicks were worried about how that would impact them. I've got stuff leading up to that. I think I tweeted an anecdote out about um, a game where was it, I think Oakley hit uh, Derek Coleman across the mouth and made him bleed in a game, in a playoff game that they had. And the Nets doctor, uh, normally you have the team doctor sitting right behind the bench or on the bench or whatever. Uh, because the Nets were stupid and passed their list of people along that they wanted to have sitting on the bench and around the bench, they put the doctor in the third deck of the garden. So it took him like 15 minutes to get down to the court level because the security didn't believe that he's actually the team doctor. And Derek Coleman had like been dominating that game and led the game in scoring for either team. And so the Knicks came back and won because of that and then won the series and what had been a really... So like the whole premise of that chapter in some ways was kind of built around the idea of fans and the atmosphere at the garden and how difficult it was to get a ticket at the garden and how congested the garden was and how people had to sit in places where they didn't want to sit. All that stuff, like it's kind of, you know, certain things dive more into detail than others, but it all was kind of around the premise of like what the experience was like of being at the garden and what the experience was like for certain fans at the garden. And so everything was just trying to find enough things that could kind of go with one theme to where you could kind of credibly put those things together and it makes sense. And you get to tell some stories and some interesting stories through it um, that all kind of fit the same bucket and doing that for, you know, for how 21 chapters or however many I had, uh, you know, it's a challenge to do it and then just try to make sure that you stay on task and, you don't tell a story that goes too far outside the lines of what you're trying to say so that you don't lose the reader's focus or so the reader doesn't feel confused. But um, no, it's, it's, it's a heavy lift to do that. And I mean, the good thing is you do have enough people reading behind you to make sure like if you do go off track completely that someone will tell you or say, maybe we can shorten this, but yeah, I, the feeling of getting a really great anecdote, you know, again, when Mirren and I would text and talk and stuff like that, those were the victories when you get, even if you talk to someone for three hours and you don't get much, you get one anecdote that's really good or just one thing that someone thinks they remember and then you can confirm that with somebody else or they can weave it a little bit more and give you even more detail. Um, it's a great feeling. I, I think I did like 640 hours worth of interviews when I went back and counted it all up um, of the 204 people I spoke to. Um and there were times there were absolutely interviews where I only got like one detail of somewhere I didn't get any really. But um, when you do get one, it, you just, you know, you just kind of take care of it as if it's like a piece of gold or something or a diamond because it's just, uh, you know, you, you, you get enough of those and you've got a book that you can write. And, uh, and so I, you know, I feel pretty proud of, of that aspect. I've never had to report that long or that hard on anything, um, including some things that, you know, people didn't necessarily want out there, didn't want out there in the way that they're going to be reported. And so it's, you know, it's a victory to be able to get those details. So I have two separate things I just thought of that I didn't have written down. So I'm going to just get them both out. So I don't forget one or the other. The first one is, and you can keep this as brief or as long as you want, but uh, what was, so you just mentioned you spoke to 204 people and did 600 plus hours worth of interviews for this. So who is the, actually, okay, I guess some of these might be like spoiler alerts. So if if one of these answers is a spoiler that you don't want out there, then you can, you could just say that and just say, read the book to find out. But <laughs> who is the, who is the biggest person that 
like the the high stature person in this book that you interviewed that people might be surprised to hear from and then like who is the again not meaning this like in in terms of worth obviously because everybody has equal worth in the garden and in life in general but who is the person like of the least renowned that you spoke to uh that made it into the book like like was it like a someone who worked at the garden or, you know, like just a ticket taker or like anything like what is the, the high point of stature in this book and like the low point of stature of people that you talk to and, and are in the book? Oh, well, I, I'll say spoiler alert a little bit. Um, or I'll say, you know, the, the, you should read it to find out, but I will say like the, the, the one that I, I kind of felt like I got really close to getting and didn't quite get just for the sake of, you know, some transparency is, is Riley. Riley never, really talks for books. Um, you know, people were pretty blunt in telling me early on in the process that, uh, he look, you know, he's, he's been with basically three teams in his career. And with those three, he's won championships with two of them. The only real bad experience he had was in New York, obviously with the way he left and the way he's remembered. And the fact that you have a lot of people are still not really in love with Pat Riley because of how he left. Um, so I, I tried really hard to get him just because I felt like his perspective would be really critical, really important if I could have it. Um, I went to great lengths. I would say, well, the greatest lengths I went to in the book was, was Mason um, because he's not there to fend for himself and really defend himself. I spent, you know, weeks r- reporting just on him, you know, probably months just reporting on him, um, spending time with his friends, spending time, a lot of time talking with his family a lot of people that have never talked before um, college roommates and teammates of his that have never talked before because they didn't feel like the media would actually kind of properly kind of contextualize him and everything that there is to him. Um, and certainly haven't spoken to the media since he died. Uh, so a lot of those people opened up to me. I don't know why um, they just said they felt like a comfort and that I was going to try to give more of a fair shape to him um, than maybe what he would nor- normally get or that, maybe because it was a book that I would have more room to kind of tell a story properly. Um, so I spent more time on him than anybody, but after that it was probably Riley and his orbit since he wouldn't speak. I went to his hometown of Schenectady and spent a few days there with people that he grew up with, went down to Houston to spend time with someone that he came up with. Um, so I spent a lot of time traveling just to try to, to spend real time with people that he grew up with and played with, you know, as a, as a kid and as a high schooler and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of people. I mean, like, there's a never-ending list of people. I think that's probably what will make the book a little bit different is that I think generally a lot of people, and I kind of learned this from Jeff Perlman, who regularly interviews 400, 500 people for each of his books. Um, if you focus just on the people that always are in the media or the people that are kind of always in the limelight, you're generally not going to get stories that you haven't heard from them before because they've been interviewed and quoted so many times on that subject. Um it's the people that have never been bothered by the media before because they were viewed as being too small who have stories that are literally just untapped. And to be quite honest, I think their memories are more um, intact as well because whereas Ewing has been interviewed 18 million times, um, the secretaries from those teams have not, they've never been interviewed. You know, the marketing people have really never been interviewed. Um, you know, the community relations people have never been interviewed about that era and what it was like to deal with those people. 
you know, the trainers have been interviewed a little bit here and there, but then, you know, talking to the opponents and talking to some of the fans and talking to the league officials about what it was like when Charles Oakley would, you know, complain about getting suspended and Anthony Mason about how he would damn near weep if someone, you know, called him out for something, just the sensitivity of these guys. Um, you know, a lot of these people have just never been asked this stuff or at least not by people in the media. So, I mean, that part of it was really cool. And I, I would actually say it's kind of the most uh, refreshing part of it is to hear from people that have never been talked to before. And there's a bit of apprehension on their part where, um, you know, some of them, God bless them, you know, a couple of them were telling me that they had like, there were people that used to work for the Knicks that had established like these private Facebook groups and they were starting Facebook groups to basically start a conversation about who I was and whether or not other people in the organization should like deal with me because they didn't know who I was and they didn't know why I was asking these questions out of the blue 30 years later. Um, and basically figure out like, am I reputable or not? And, um, you know, and after three, four, five, six people had like good experiences, then like the floodgates kind of opened. And so it was always interesting to have like the first 10 minutes of a conversation with someone with them trying to figure out who I am and what I'm about and what I'm doing. And, you know, people that were like on the verge of hanging up as soon as I said who I was. And then, you know, these are the same people that now are calling me every week to get an update on like how close the book is to coming out because they're excited about it. So it's, it's a weird way of just like how tight certain people were at first. And then like, these are people that I'm friendly with now and, you know, that check in with me just to see how I'm doing and <laughs> people that are pitching other book ideas at me and stuff like that. Now it, it's kind of crazy how the, you know, the pendulum swings so much, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's been an interesting process to say the least. Well, that sounds like as good of an endorsement as any for the uh, book there with the uh, uh, people constantly wanting to know that you interviewed, you know, wanting to know when the book's going to come out. Um, the other thing that I had on my head, and this might be a little too like inside baseball. Uh, so I, maybe some listeners won't enjoy this as much as I will, but I'm just curious about this. So, I mean, I've, I've worked in, you know, journalism and, and that sort of thing for a while. I've also worked in blogging and things are a little different in blogging as far as titling things, you know, in traditional journalism, it's like, like, for example, like Mark Berman, you know, for the New York post, he'll write up a Nick's game story. Maybe he'll give some input as to what the headline is going to be, but ultimately the headline is up to the page editor or, you know, the, the uh, managing editor, whoever happens to, you know, look over the the pages, they come up with the headlines generally to put on the page. You're generally not titling your own work. And it's, it's sort of challenging in a way. And I guess we sort of talked about it with the, uh, with, you know, the change in the, from your original title at the beginning, um, as far as the, you know, creative process that went into that, but you mentioned that you came up with all your own chapter names. And so I'm curious, like, is that something that you had done, like that you have done in like your journalism career or, you know, were you mostly outlets that you worked at? Did they usually take care of that for you? And then secondly, like, was that a really fun process coming up with, with all the different chapter names or whatever, and, and trying to do that? Or did you find that it was kind of like, if that wasn't something that you had previously done much in your career, was that something that was kind of a challenge and, and, you know, no, a little difficult to get into? Yeah. Super fun. Um, I, I, I tweeted about that saying that I, if I could redo this process over again and cut out the researching and reporting and writing, I would gladly do that. If I could just name the chapters, it, it's kind of like, I don't know, it, 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 something about it. It was just very fun to summarize stuff and 
you know, I had one person that tweeted me. They were like, aren't you supposed to just kind of like, why, why did you do this instead of just doing like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three? And it's like, I just think any opportunity you have to set your work apart, I've always kind of been of that belief. Anytime you can set your work apart from somebody else's, whether it's titling chapters differently. Um, one of my favorite books, my favorite fiction book in the world is titled The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Uh, it's about this kid who's um, essentially he's on the spectrum and walks out of his house one day and finds this dog just lying on the ground, a dog that's basically been murdered on the yard. And, and, and like the whole premise of the book is based on like him trying to solve this dog's murder. So it's already different because it's a book about a, It's a murder mystery, but it's a dog murder mystery. It's about a kid who, because he's on the spectrum and because of where he's at on the spectrum, sees stuff so differently and, you know, kind of doesn't communicate the same way everyone else does and doesn't really receive affection the same way everybody else does. So because of all this thing, it's just told from a very different viewpoint. And I, you know, that book is um, the chapters, instead of it being like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, or the chapters having titles, the chapters are written out as prime numbers. So it's like one and seven and, you know, whatever the next one is, 13. It, it's weird. It's just different. Um, and it, you know, it, and so the book keeps going with its chapter numbers with all prime numbers. So like by the end of the book, you end up in the hundred somewhere, maybe higher than that, but it's, it's just different and it makes you think and it makes you wonder. And it's like a talking point. So for me, that part of it was really fun. I mean, some of the chapters I would say are not as unusually named as others. Um, one of them, a lot of people noticed when I posted just kind of the table of contents, they're like, wait, is this chapter a reference to this, this really famous Sopranos episode? I was like, you know, yeah, it, it is. You know, and it's so it's it's just it's fun to kind of have if you want to call them Easter eggs or just kind of things that make people curious. I mean, the whole process is this, right? Like you want to give people a reason to read something or a curiosity to read something. You want to approach it. You know, I I, I think my work is different than a lot of other people in sports writing. Um. And like I said, I think I've mentioned it before. I had a book publisher just straight up tell me that he actually was really, really interested in the book proposal. He loved my work. He's a Knicks fan, but he declined to make an offer or a bid on the book because of the fact that like he knows my writing already from the Wall Street Journal and everywhere else. And he was like, you know, I've read your stuff. I love your stuff, but I'm not really sure it's what I think about when I think of like a narrative book that just tries to tell a story of what happened and why the Knicks were so good during those years and how they were so interesting during those years. You, you normally tend to write about really perky things like Kevin Durant's shoes falling off, which it's a great story, but it's not, you know, you have to hold someone's attention for a, a couple hundred pages and just tell a story in a straightforward fashion. Like I, I haven't really seen you do that much before. So having to do that in this way, which I, I wouldn't say it's boring to have to do it that way. I think you still can make it really interesting and lively, but any way that you can make it a little bit more lively or a little bit different, with the chapter tiles or anything else, I think you go for it. And to your first question, um, yeah, I mean, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, they, they let you have input on the headline a little bit. They generally headline it for you and then ask you, is it okay, before they run it um, at a place like that. At 538, what we would do when I got there, um, they would we would have almost like contests where we would be in Slack. And in doing the contest, we would make suggestions as to what we thought the headline should be. 
I would make a suggestion as the author of the piece and then everybody else that was on Slack and actually paying attention and would kind of read through the story a little bit just to kind of see what the top of it reads like and stuff like that. They would offer their suggestions as to what they would headline it. And then we would kind of go back and forth about which was best or maybe tweak, you know, someone's uh, headline suggestion and maybe change a word or two of it. Um, but it's a pretty healthy back and forth, but it also gives people the opportunity to kind of before someone gets blasted for a headline or an insensitive headline or something like that, or one that's just, you know, uh, clickbait or something like that, that you, you try to give some real thought to it. And so I've, I've kind of been involved in that a little bit. It's certainly not my job to do that, but, um, you know, I'm like anybody else. I, I think a, a chapter tile is a little bit different. Uh, but it's, you know, everybody keeps reminding me like it's, it's your book, Chris, it's, it's my book. And so, you know, if I felt really strongly about a chapter title or even the title of the book itself, um, you know, more often than not, they're going to let me win that battle because, you know, I'm the one that's kind of put in so much time for it. And it's obviously more important to me than anybody else. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 but I certainly wanted to make the chapter titles fun and like anything you want, if someone's reading the book and they're tired and they're like, man, you know, I got to get some sleep for the next day. And then they see the next chapter, if Sopranos is their favorite show and they see the next chapter as a Sopranos title, essentially, like you're more likely to keep reading or to, you know, to be interested in it, engaged in it for a reason like that. It seems small, but you know, it probably does make a little bit of a difference. Chris, how did you celebrate actually finishing it? And I, I don't know, I mean, when that moment officially is, is it when your editor says, you know what, I think, I think we're done. Is it when you have the hard copy in your hands? But I guess what was that moment like? And what was like, was it just immense relief? Or was it sort of like, Oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of miss this. Or I, I guess, I guess what happened? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I still haven't really completely had that moment yet. Um, I did at one point and the girl I was dating at the time was like, we've got to like celebrate, you know, do something, go to dinner, you know, take a trip. And I was like, it's not really done yet though. Like all it is is that I turned in the manuscript. Now I've got to have my editor read it, my literary agent read it, you know, some other people that I trust to read certain parts of it to make sure it makes sense. There's going to be changes, you know, still in the middle of the basketball season. Like there were all these reasons that I couldn't really celebrate it. Now we're a lot closer to the end. You know, I'm still making small, small tweaks to it. Um, I'm basically at a point where I can't make any large sweeping changes to it anymore. And hopefully I wouldn't need to anyway. But um, yeah, now that I'm at the end of it, I, I don't know. I really have not really exhaled. And, you know, before we started this podcast, we were talking about how the league really doesn't allow for that many sizable gaps in time. I guess we have one right now. But we're also a couple weeks away from the preseason. And because of that, guess who needs to work on season previews and everything else? So it's like there's really not much opportunity. Um, I'll probably take vacation at some point before the real season starts. And I'll probably try to exhale a little bit then and maybe a nice dinner, you know, something. But I, I'm not sure. Like a, there's I, there just hasn't been much opportunity. You know, I'm still pretty cautious about the pandemic. I go out occasionally but you know not that much and not anything too crazy so i don't know it, it kind of feels lame me and my um my book editor my literary agent talked about the idea of if the book if you know god willing if you know if the book hits the bestseller list or something that we'll go to Cl clyde's wine and dine uh for like a celebration dinner if that happens <laughs> wow um, no better place no better place yeah so oh, it's still a while away from that we'll see if it happens it's a, it's very difficult to make the list you know i'm so proud of Mirren for making it um the times has made changes to the way the list operates now it used to be that if a book was in the top 10 of its genre 
um, that it would make the list. So if it was a top 10 sports book in terms of sales that week, that it would make the list. Now it's just the top 15 books, period, that are nonfiction. And so you're up against a lot of books against, you know, that are about, about Donald Trump or about politics or wokeness or, you know, stress or pandemics and flus and everything. You're, you're up against kind of whatever is the main thing in the news that moment that happens to be out there. President Obama writing a, you know, a biography or a memoir or what have you. All those things you're in direct competition with. So uh, it's, it's challenging. It's more challenging than it was a year and a half ago to make the list now. Uh, so I'm hopeful. But again, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I, I think if we're all being honest, we're all a little bit vain about and hopeful about. And, you know, I would love to, to make the list, but, you know, life will go on if I don't. Um, so, yeah, so we'll see what happens. Well, now I'm going to feel like a jerk because literally Clyde just tweeted like half an hour ago that Clyde's Wine and Dine is closed, apparently. <laughs> apparently, wow. they did not survive the pandemic. So the, the Wine and Dine wow. era is over, well, apparently. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's a fun yeah. place, man. Wow. Yeah. 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 Wow. So I anyway. I people tweeting about Clyde's – Clyde – it actually scared me a little bit because I thought someone – the way they phrased it was as if something had come to an end and I saw someone tweet about Clyde that way. So I did Google Clyde really quickly just to make sure like that he hadn't, you know, it was sad enough that Norm McDonald passed away today. Um, so I'm really glad to hear it's not Clyde. I'm sad to hear that it's his restaurant. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, maybe that's not a very good omen for the book and the book sales. Um, but we'll see. Like I said, we'll see what happens. It doesn't matter. But I'm sad to hear that about the restaurant. It was a great place. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. All right. And that's it for this first part with Chris Herring. We talked about the book today, and in the next episode, we're going to get Chris's thoughts on the Knicks, you know, this year's Knicks, not the 90s Knicks, and see how he liked their offseason, what he thinks uh, is in store for Julius Randle, R.J. Barrett, if there's some regression coming, if those two could potentially take a, take a step forward. Uh, also, we talk about some similarities between the 12-13 team, which was the team that Chris first covered uh, for the Knicks beat, which sort of put him on Knicks fans radar and led to the process of him even writing this book. Uh, and, you know, talk about the similarities between that, that team, this past year's team and this year's team coming up. So all that's coming up on the next episode of Locked on Knicks. <laughs>